I have come to love that song uh, so much in the last couple of years of my life as I ponder the great truth that it expresses. We just sang that song at the Devoted Conference over in the Asheville area. I've been there Friday and Saturday. That conference is still going on. A, a conference that we host started uh, three years ago. This is our third one, and it has mushroomed. Uh, there are around 600 or so in attendance, uh, young adults, college career, just young adults, really. And uh, 12 states represented. Some uh, drove uh, 23 hours uh, to get there. The theme is devoted to Christ, so we sang this song, uh, His Rose for Mine. It fits that theme, being devoted to Christ. I had such a joy of preaching there Friday evening and then yesterday. And the other speaker, Rick Holland, uh, uh, such a wonderful message on what it means to learn Christ. And then he and I did a Q&A together last night. One thing I will comment on at the close of that session with no warning, Kevin made me sing a solo to the congregation there. You can pray for him as he searches for a new job and <laughs> a place where he might better fit in. You can pray for them today. They'll finish up around noon or so. Rick is preaching t two more times. What a great conference. I wish you all could be there. We're really going to have to think about now what to do in the future as it's grown. Join me this morning in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. As you know, we have been looking at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus in other words, between the resurrection and the ascension, when he returned to heaven, Jesus was active. He appeared to many people. He ministered to many people in his glorified body, the very glorified body that he ascended into heaven with, the very glorified body that he exists in even now as we speak, and he will exist in that glorified body for eternity. In the Gospel of John, which is what we are studying here on Sunday mornings, it is chapters 20 and 21 uh, where we find John's account of these post-resurrection appearances by the Lord Jesus. But Luke is one of the writers who gives maybe the most attention to this period of Christ's ministry. And he does that in Acts chapter 1. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, but also the Acts of the Apostles. Let me read just a few opening verses of Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Luke writes, The first account that I composed, and that means his Gospel, about all the things Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So some good information there about that period between the resurrection and the ascension. Nevertheless, it is John's account, of course, that we are studying here on Sunday morning. And there is a major agreement between John's account in the Gospel of John and Luke's account there in Acts 
And that is the the topic of Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit to his people. Now, we found that promise back uh, earlier in our study of the Gospel of John in chapters 14, 15, and 16. You'll remember there that Jesus promised that once he returned to the Father in heaven, he would send the helper, the paraclete, referring to the Holy Spirit. He would send the Spirit to instruct the disciples, bring to their minds all they had learned and give them new instruction, all that truth which became the New Testament. And the Spirit would empower his people for the gospel mission. So the gift of the Spirit was promised in John, but then it is in Acts that we find the fulfillment of that promise. Now let's review just for a moment the previous passage here in John chapter 20. Last time we saw in verses 19 through 21 that the risen Jesus surprisingly materialized, really, uh, in the room where the disciples and some others had gathered after he was crucified. They feared the Jews, the religious leaders, what those leaders might do to them. They were basically hiding out in that room. Jesus, in his glorified body, just appeared there, materialized there. And he verified his identity to them by showing that group of believers his wounds, the wounds from the crucifixion. And then, you'll remember, he declared a blessing of peace to them to comfort them and reassure them. And then he even commissioned them to be his witnesses in the world. Let me read just verse 21, the last verse of that previous passage. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, that little review summarizes the first three features of this important scene that we are studying. Those features were, I gave them to you last time, number one, the surprising appearance, meaning Jesus materializing in that room. Number two, the clear demonstration, he clearly demonstrated who he was by showing them his wounds. And then number three... The third feature, the official commission, the surprising appearance, the clear demonstration, the official commission. So today, in verses 22 to 23, we are continuing that. Now we find the fourth and the fifth features of this very dramatic scene in that room, features in which we will see John going on to remind us of the role that the Holy Spirit plays as we fulfill our mission, and as well, he's going to remind us once again what the essence of our mission's message is. So here's the fourth feature of this scene, number four, the prophetic illustration. The prophetic illustration. In verse 22, we find something very unusual that occurred that night. The account of this unusual occurrence begins with a connecting phrase there at the beginning of verse 22. And when he had said that, referring back to verse 21, that phrase links the previous verse, the commission related to our mission on earth, it links that with what Jesus is about to mention in a moment in verse 22 about the Holy Spirit. In other words, there's a connection in thought because the Spirit is the one who empowers and strengthens us for the gospel mission. And this empowerment by the Spirit is absolutely essential to gospel work in this world. 
Why? It's because regardless of how well we fulfill our mandate, our role in the mission of proclaiming the truth, regardless of how passionate we are about it and clear we are when we give the gospel to people, we face an insurmountable obstacle, insurmountable as far as our efforts are concerned, and that's the problem of sin in people. Sin's reign, sin's influence is so overwhelming in people that no one can believe the message we're giving them. No one can turn in faith to Christ without God's supernatural working in their heart by the Spirit. Let me just remind you of what we believe about that based on two or three passages here. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, Paul writes, the natural man, the one who's in their sin still, outside of Christ, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4, to make it worse, Paul writes, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Just one more, that classic passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, that summarizes our spiritual deadness that we're born into. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, dead in trespasses. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. There's no difference in anybody when we're born into this world, spiritually dead. The point is, without the spirit's activity, divine activity of supernatural work of opening someone's heart and giving them faith to believe and repent. Without that, Christians, churches, preachers may do a lot of things well. We can do a lot of things that are helpful and worthwhile, but they cannot and will not bring anyone to faith in Christ. For sinners to believe The Holy Spirit must attend the ministry of God's Word with power. So as we go about seeking to fulfill our gospel mission, we're we're trusting in that. We're trusting in and relying on the work of the Spirit of God. This is true whether we're talking about a co-worker, a neighbor, a family member, a father, a, a mother, a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister. It doesn't matter. Now back to our text. For those original followers that Jesus was speaking to that night, the Holy Spirit had not come yet, not in the sense of indwelling his people. The Holy Spirit would not come until the day of Pentecost, an event that's recorded in Acts chapter 2. So let me just jump ahead and read that to keep that in your mind, what happened on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Verse 4 says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. There's the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus gave about the Spirit coming. 
So where we are in our study of the Gospel of John, that event in Acts chapter 2 hadn't happened yet. However, something related to the Holy Spirit did happen when Jesus was talking with his followers who were gathered in that locked room that night on the evening of the first Easter Sunday, the first Resurrection Sunday, and here it is, verse 22. And when he had said this, verse 21, when he had said that, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Like I said, something unusual happened that night. So what is this? And what's the connection here to the bestowal of the Spirit at Pentecost, which doesn't happen until Acts chapter 2? Well, let's start with what this does not mean. This is not merely John's version of Pentecost. Keep in mind when John wrote this gospel, it's many years later, way after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It's not merely John's version of Pentecost, John taking what he knew had happened and just sort of inserting it into his account. One reason we know that is the fact that Jesus had told his disciples that the Spirit's coming depended on his own return to the Father, the ascension. The Spirit could not be given until after Jesus' ascension. Another reason is what we are told would be the promised result of the Spirit's coming. This is not the Spirit's coming here. What was the result? Well, Jesus promised that the Spirit's coming would make a profound difference in his followers. They were going to be instructed in truth. Their memories were going to be stimulated of all they had learned. They were going to be strengthened. They were going to be empowered for ministry and life. They would be totally different so that they would be very effective missionaries. But we don't find that change happening in these disciples that Jesus spoke to that night. We don't find it here in this chapter. We don't find it in the next chapter. For example, even in this chapter, in verse 26, you find that even after this unusual event of what we're studying here, in verse 26, they were still hiding out, locked in the behind doors, afraid of the Jewish authorities. Later on, Thomas comes, and he comes to faith. But it's not because of of the promised witness of the Spirit. It's because he literally saw the risen Jesus for himself, just like the others did, finally. In the next chapter, John chapter 21, we're going to observe at the end that there was still a little bit of competition going on in their minds amongst the disciples. The point is, all that's a far cry from from power and and the joy and the powerful uh, exuberant witness and the courageous preaching and the, the, the ability to persevere in and delight in suffering, all that that was, that was definitely displayed in the early Christians after Pentecost in Acts 2. Not in these two chapters. D.A. Carson puts it this way, if John chapter 20 verse 22 is understood to be John's record of Pentecost... In other words, the coming of the Spirit, it must be frankly admitted that the results are desperately disappointing. (laughs) And the promises of John 14, 15, and 16 vastly inflated. 
Perhaps this is the most interesting issue, and it's something grammatical to at least consider. The verb breathed here occurs only here in the New Testament. And once again, you can find this in in commentaries. Uh, D.A. Carson, again, actually is the one who points this out, that despite most our English translations here, the Greek term itself does not automatically demand that that preposition on be connected to the verb. He breathed on them. It can just as well be translated, he breathed. Or perhaps he exhaled. The etymology of the term itself lends itself to being even translated, he, he puffed. And you look at this verb outside the New Testament, because this is the only place it's found. When you look at it outside, you find lots of cases of its usage where the preposition on or something like upon or in is not necessarily included in its usage. So the point is that this verb can simply just be translated breathe. So the verse could be just something like this, and with that he breathed, or with that he expelled a deep breath, and then said, receive the Holy Spirit. That's not a deal breaker, though. Even if the preposition on is meant to be included here, still, if you add it all up, it is clear that nothing in this verse supports the idea that Jesus was somehow breathing the Holy Spirit into them. It's not that. So what is it? Well, here's the answer. What Jesus did was simply a symbol. It was simply symbolic of the gift of the Spirit that was promised. It was a reminder to them. It was a, it was a, a promise again that was going to be fulfilled very soon after this. I mean, it was in the near future, Acts chapter 2. Or another way of saying it, the simple act of breathing by Jesus and what he said here was a meaningful emblem, an emblem, a symbol, a parable. Therefore, what he did was similar to the vivid object lessons that you frequently find in the Old Testament where Old Testament prophets were told to do something to illustrate their message. I'll give you just a few examples of that. For example, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 13, verses 1 to 9, Jeremiah was told by God to do something with a waistband. He had to take a waistband and do something with that. And and it it was an illustration, if you read that in Jeremiah 13, it was an illustration of God's judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. You'd have to read the account there to get all the details of it, but it was just an object lesson. In Jeremiah chapter 19, God told him to do something else as an object lesson. Chapter 19, God had the prophet break and break an earthenware jar as a symbol of God's judgment. One more, Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, God told the prophet to go get a brick and an iron plate, and he was to use the brick and an iron plate as symbols of what was going to happen to Israel. So this is not out of line here in Scripture to see something like this happen, this breathing out even by Jesus as a symbolic action, an object lesson about what was to come. This was therefore a very important reminder to them of the pledge he had made to them, a pledge of the power that they were going to actually receive at Pentecost 40 days later. And this fits with what Jesus does later tell them 
right right before his ascension, on the day of his ascension, if you jump to Acts chapter 1, remember what he told them there. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The very language there of Acts 1 verse 8 says it hasn't happened yet. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And when they finally did receive the Holy Spirit, the result of that was remarkable. The result was immediate. The result was public, ongoing. This dramatic outpouring of miraculous power. And Scripture tells us something. That ever since then, once the Spirit was given, the fulfillment of the promise on the day of Pentecost... Every Christian has received the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. Romans 8 verse 9 says very clearly, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. We don't wait for something like this, some sort of miraculous thing to happen. It did on the day of Pentecost. That was the initial pouring out of the Spirit indwelling Jesus' followers Paul tells the Corinthians, we've we've all been baptized by the Spirit. Even the Corinthians, they had a lot of issues. Into one body, Christ. And again, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. It was an object lesson. A visible reminder. An active, visible parable of what was to come. It was a prophetic illustration. Here's the fifth and final feature of this Seen on that evening, number five, delegated permission. Delegated permission. Now, once the disciples went out on the gospel mission, they were going to have the Lord's permission to make a very important declaration about people. And this permission was the Lord's own authority that he was delegating to them. But this delegated permission to declare what? Verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Two very unusual verses here in this short passage. Now before we consider the nature of what Jesus was delegating to them and giving them the permission to declare, let's note that Jesus again identifies the heart of the message that he came on earth to proclaim. I mean, what does he center in on here? The forgiveness of sins. That is the central tenet of the gospel message, the good news. And therefore, it's the central tenet of what we proclaim. Now, just listen to a few verses on how often this is emphasized in the New Testament, that at the center of it all, the gospel message is this idea of being sinners and we need the forgiveness of sins. Luke 24, 46 and 47. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, this is the same need of all ethnic groups, all people, all nationalities of all time, all of the world, still today. This, this is still the need. has not changed. Acts 10, verse 43. 
says about Christ, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. Acts 13, 38, therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Colossians 1, 14, in whom in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. One more, Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Same thing as sins. Now, I'm emphasizing this again here this morning, and I have many times along the way, because there are those who insist on criticizing this priority we place on telling people what their biggest problem is. Criticism on telling people that the only way to have their sins forgiven is in Jesus, and that is the only way they can get to heaven. They insist that our our mission is different than this. Our mission is to fix this world in some way. That's a very different concept of the gospel mission. But verse 23 just as an introductory note here on it, confirms that Christ's own emphasis was a very singular message, the forgiveness of sins through faith in him. At the end of the day, that's what matters. So with that in mind, what authority was being delegated by Christ in this verse, and to whom is it being delegated? So glad you asked. Now, I can tell you one extremely wrong interpretation of this. And it's the one held by Roman Catholicism. This is a very important verse to them. In fact, it is the interpretation of this verse that accounts for a great deal, maybe not all, but a great deal of the difference between biblical Christians and Roman Catholics. Biblical Christians and Roman Catholics really do affirm two fundamentally different religions. They deeply disagree about the Bible's teaching on the way that sinners are saved. Now, Roman Catholicism seized seized this statement by Jesus and said and says that Jesus was establishing with this a special priesthood that possesses the authority to pronounce the absolution of sins. In claiming authorization from this verse, Roman Catholic priests, therefore, hear confessions, prescribe penance to make up for those sins, and and they remit the sins of that person. But there's absolutely no biblical support for that terrible error by Roman Catholicism. So I want to spend just some time this morning carefully considering this statement Jesus made in light of not only what's here in this verse, but in light of Scripture's entire teaching. And it's a progression of thought here I'll, I'll share with you that is presented very clearly by Richard Phillips in his commentary on John, but here's sort of a summary of a flow of thought here we need to keep in mind. First is this. The fact that the Bible clearly does teach that only one has the authority to forgive sins, ultimately. Only God can forgive sins. That's Old Testament and New Testament. Here's Daniel 9, verse 9. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we've rebelled against Him. 
the sins against him, he alone can forgive it. Now, Jesus affirmed this truth earlier in his ministry. Find it in the book of Mark, for example, when he was in Capernaum. He was teaching there. And you remember that scene where the, the paralytic, the paralyzed man was, was lowered to Jesus, you know, through a hole in the ceiling that they made there, the flat thatch roof, thatch roof. They cut a hole. They, they couldn't get in. So they lowered this man down on a pallet, you know, through, through a hole. Quite a, an amazing thing happening there, interrupting the teaching. Imagine that happening here, you know, on a Sunday. Mark chapter 2, verse 5 says, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now the scribes were there, and boy, they heard that, and it lit them up. They, they objected. Here's what they said, Mark 2, verse 7. Why does this man, Jesus, speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, Jesus didn't take issue with them on that statement. He didn't challenge that assertion at all. He agreed with it. Instead, he told the paralyzed man this in Mark 2, verse 11, turned to him and said, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. He healed him. In other words, the ability to heal the man, the point of healing the man was to prove his deity, his own deity, and thus the right that he had to forgive sin because only The divine one, only deity, only God can forgive sin. So the point is, Jesus affirmed the truth that God alone has the authority to forgive, and thus he could forgive sins because he is God, he is divine. This is not giving us some sort of authority or anybody authority to actually forgive somebody's sins. Second, the Roman Catholic doctrine fails to note that Jesus was speaking to a mixed group of people. We saw that last time I read to you, Luke 24, 33, that the disciples were there, but there were others there. Most likely some of the, the women who were faithful followers were there. The two men who had been walking on the road to Emmaus, that Jesus joined them and began to instruct them from the Old Testament about who he was and, and all that had been happening. It says in Luke 24, 33, that those men went to Jerusalem then And they gathered together, they found gathered together the eleven, and it says, and those who were with them. It wasn't just the disciples. There was a group there. So Jesus, when he said this, was not addressing just the the disciples, the apostles, or as some would say today, you know, giving some authority to the church clergy. Instead, what he's saying here in his address was to believers in general, something the church as a whole has the permission to do. And it's not forgiving sins because we don't have that permission. The authority delegated here by Jesus is given to every believer. So we certainly deny the Roman Catholic doctrine of, of a special priesthood that has that ability. In fact, we affirm the biblical doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. A doctrine emphasized in the Reformation, by the way. There is no special priesthood today. Uh, Christ fulfilled once for all the sacrificial ministry of Old Testament priesthood when he offered his own life as the sufficient sacrifice and atonement for sins. So now every believer functions in, the, in, in a priestly ministry of having access to God in the priestly ministries of worship and prayer. By the way, the same author, John, you know, wrote the Revelation that we're studying on Wednesday nights. 
At least every once in a while we do. Study that on Wednesday nights. Here's what he wrote in, in Revelation 1 verse 6, just rejoicing over this, that Revelation 1 6 says, in Christ he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. He's made us all priests. We have to keep in mind, it was a mixed group he was talking to. Third, no New Testament apostle ever claimed the authority to be able to forgive sin. There there are no instances in the New Testament of an apostle literally, based upon his own authority, granting the forgiveness of sins, remitting sins. There is this example that some might turn to in Peter's ministry to that Gentile, the centurion Cornelius, and it's in Acts chapter 10, 42 and 43. Here's what it says. He ordered us, the Lord ordered us to preach to people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living of the dead. Verse 43, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Peter wasn't absolving their sins. This is a reference to the preaching of the gospel, the apostolic preaching of the gospel, which is the message of forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ. No New Testament apostle misinterpreted this. Fourth, in the Greek text, and the way I read it to you is the the best translations. translation, the verbs forgiven and retained are in the perfect tense so that they are accurately translated. You see it in the New American Standard. You see it in the New Legacy Study Bible. Renders them have been forgiven and have been retained. In other words, the perfect tense describes a present state, but it's based on something that happened in the past, a past action. So the church is is authorized, Christians are authorized, not to literally absolve somebody's sin, but to tell sinners the terms on which they may know that their sins have been forgiven. And conversely, the terms that make it clear their forgiveness of their sins is withheld. See, get this, it's very important. We're not authorized to say your sins are forgiven, but rather your sins have been forgiven. And it's passive voice, just so you'll know. God's the one who's doing that. Fifth, the last one here, I think. The verbs are plural, not singular. Just pointing out to you, grammar like this is important. That's why we, all these seminary students are here studying, you know, learning how to, how to examine the, the, the scriptures for what the author meant by what he said. The, the verbs are plural, not singular. The objects in this verse are plural, not singular. In other words, the Greek text is not speaking about forgiving an individual person's sins, absolving that individual of their sins. Instead, it's something that's true universally of all people who believe and repent. The significance of this distinction is that Jesus was granting the church the authority not to forgive individuals, but in a sense, rather to make a distinction between the two categories of persons based upon the forgiveness of sins. So the idea is this, all those who trust in Christ are forgiven. All those who do not trust in Christ are not forgiven. William Barclay comments, one thing is quite certain, 
No man can forgive any other man's sins, but another thing is equally certain. It is the great privilege of the church to convey the message and the announcement and the fact of God's forgiveness to men. So here's the bottom line. Any Christian can declare that forgiveness is based on how sinners respond to the gospel message. We have that permission delegated to this, and this delegated permission even connects with what was earlier granted to the church in Matthew chapter 18 on the subject of church discipline. Remember that statement in Matthew 18 where you go through the steps of church discipline, step one, two, three, and four. If, if someone is in unrepentant sin, we're to go to them and confront them in love, and if they don't repent, we're to take step two as two or three witnesses and and to verify what's being said and what happened and what didn't happen. If they still don't repent, if they are in unrepentant sin, step three is you read their name before the church, you tell the church. So the church can pray for that individual, call them to repentance. Here's what 17 and 18 says of Matthew 18. If he refuses to listen to them, those witnesses, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, here's step four. Let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? They're put out of the fellowship because they're treated as an unbeliever, as if they are an unbeliever. Verse 18 then says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, the declaration in the exercise of church discipline is affirmed in heaven as well. When the elders of a, of a faithful church exercise church discipline in accordance with God's word and, and find ourselves obliged to remove a member from the church fellowship, Christ declared in Matthew 18, what is faithfully bound and loosed by the church on earth reflects, is just reflecting the divine authority that exists in heaven itself. We have the authority to treat that person as an unbeliever based on whether or not they're repenting of their sins. So back to our text, Jesus' statement must fit with all that, the biblical teaching that God alone has authority to forgive sins. And that means that what the church receives here is the authority to proclaim God's forgiveness of sins that comes through faith in Christ alone. The delegated permission. So let me just summarize both last time and this time with a couple of confirmations that I want to leave with you this morning. What's confirmed in this dramatic scene for us. Here's confirmation number one. It is the standard of our judgment. The standard of judgments that we make. Unbelievers, you know, love Matthew 7. It's their life verse. You know, judge not lest you be judged. They don't know anything else but they know that one. They don't really know what that one means, though. It doesn't tell us never to make judgments. It goes on to teach you in Matthew 7 that as you judge, you will be judged, so judge the right way. First, deal with the sin in your own heart, so you go humbly to make a judgment. It it actually assumes you are going to make a judgment that someone has a speck in their eye, and it needs to be dealt with. Sin. Deal with your own sin first so you go humbly. It goes on to teach that you know a tree by its fruit. You you make a judgment there. 
The point is, we, we do make judgments, but the standard of our judgment is so important, God has given us His Word as the supreme standard by which to judge. In other words, that which the Scriptures affirm, that is what we should dogmatically and unhesitatingly affirm. That which the Scriptures denounce, we can authoritatively and without apology denounce. We're not judging that person ourselves about their spiritual state and their lifestyle. We're simply conveying the judgment that Scripture makes. We don't decide ourselves what's right and wrong, but we do declare with boldness that which God has already revealed in His Word as what is right and wrong. So when people reject the saving message of the gospel, when they deny the person and the work of Christ, then the church has this authority that the Word gives us to tell them that they will perish in hell unless they repent. And the accusation could be, judge not lest you be judged. You know what the Bible says, the good book says. Don't be so self-righteous, it's not me making the judgment. It's the word of God, it's not my opinion, it's not your opinion. It's not our personal judgment, it's a judgment made based upon the revealed word of God. And the real revealed word of God does say things like this, John 3 verse 18, they know John 3 16, but verse 18 says... He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this one, this is one of the most sobering statements in the New Testament, I think. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. There's the judgment we make because God put it in his word. Conversely, when people genuinely profess faith in Christ as their Savior and Lord, we can make a judgment about that profession based on Scripture, based on passages like Romans 10, verse 9. I mean, I can't know their heart, but I can make a judgment based upon this. I can say to them, listen, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Parents should present it to their children that way. We don't pronounce them saved. We can say this, if you genuinely put your faith in Christ alone, God forgives you of your sin. Again, the point, the church's authority concerning anything it declares never comes from within, and that's when we go astray, when we try to make it from within. The church's authority doesn't come from some hierarchy of clergy. It comes from the scriptures. We find the confirmation the standard of our judgment. The, the other confirmation is this. Number two, the heart of our message. Once again, I know I have beaten this drum to death, but here it is again, the heart of our message. Jesus did not tell his followers to launch political campaigns. He did not give them instruction to transform society. He told them to proclaim a message about forgiveness. That's the world's greatest need. The world's greatest need is for the people in the world to be forgiven of their sin. That obliges every church, it obliges every Christian to proclaim the gospel's offer of forgiveness through faith in Christ. 
I'll leave you with these, this verse. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Therefore, based upon the fact that we've been reconciled to God, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's our message, the gospel truth, and that's what we celebrate and even commemorate now in the observance of the Lord's table today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these confirming statements. Help us to remember that it's, it's not about our own opinions or anything like that, what we are proclaiming and what we are confirming and making judgments on or what you have already made judgments on in your word. And we are the news tellers. We are the announcers. And what we announce is very clear. It's the forgiveness of sin that comes one way from you. You forgive sins of those who put their faith and trust in your son alone. We're so glad we have a savior. We're so glad that you're a saving God. We're so glad we have a message that doesn't change, that's timeless. It doesn't matter what the world keeps throwing at us. We just keep saying the same thing. We have the same unchanging authority, Scripture. Thank you for that, Lord. May we be emboldened to be faithful to the mission. Help us now as we observe the Lord's table, as we remember and commemorate what makes all this possible, our salvation, the fact that we can be a part of the gospel mission today. All goes back to your Son, the eternal Son, who lived a perfect life in our place that we could never live in obedience to your law, who gave his life willingly on the cross in obedience as well to the demands of the law for justice and payment of sin. Thank you that the Lord Jesus took our place on the cross to pay for all our sins. Help our hearts to be warmed as we think about him today. In his name we pray, amen. You're invited to observe this table and partake of the elements if you're a follower of Christ, if you're one of those who have had your sins forgiven because you put your faith and trust in him alone, not trusting yourself in any way. You, he's your Lord. He's your Savior. You're following him. You're invited to this table regardless of what church you're a part of. Take a little stack of two cups. One holds the element that represents the body of Christ. The other one has the juice that represents the blood of Christ. Just hold on to those and we'll observe them together. The men will pass them now and we will sing together this song of rejoicing that Christ, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief as Isaiah 53 prophesied, who, who, whom God struck and placed upon him our sins, that one to us is our Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior we do have. Let's sing that together. So much truth there, biblical truth that the songwriter captured, you know, trying to summarize the gospel message and the 
story of redemption, God's eternal redemptive plan in one song and a few verses is difficult, but you certainly find the prophecy there. Going back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament giving us truth, everything it says is true, but there's always this sense of expectation there in the Old Testament. Promises that linger that are not fulfilled. Expectation. And that very central and significant prophecy in Isaiah 53 about that one who would come to be the fulfillment of all those promises, the one in whom the expectation would be fulfilled. This man of sorrows, it confused people. They expected the Messiah to be a a great and glorious, victorious warrior king. And yet it talked about one who would be stricken, who'd be cut down, bruised, our, our iniquities placed on him a suffering servant. He is that one. All of that was fulfilled in Jesus, the man of sorrows. It is true that when he died on the cross, it was a very shameful death. He, he bore shame. They scoffed at him. And it was all scoffing and shame that was really meant for us. Not that everybody recognized that at that time. But it was meant for us because he was there in our place. He stood condemned for our sin. And all that he did did then accomplish and even sealed, guaranteed the pardon that we can have, a full atonement, all of our sin, past, present, and future forgiven. And he ascended back to heaven because he was raised from the dead and He rules and reigns as the glorified risen king today, but the story's not over yet. There's a consummation of all that. He comes again. And when Christ told us to observe this table, he even included that thought, observe this, all that it represents, my death on your behalf, observe that until I come. So we even remember that when we observe the elements of the table. And then we will sing this even more zealously and passionately when he comes in power and glory hallelujah what a savior we have the wafer represents the body of Christ that was given in our place on the cross we remember it together the Passover cup that they had observed so many times through the years and centuries Christ said now represents a different covenant not the old covenant not the Mosaic covenant but the new covenant fulfilled in him, the blood that was shed for the remission of our sins. But let's pray together again. Father, thank you for our Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior we have. We're so grateful that his cry, it is finished, captured the reality that everything that was necessary for us to be forgiven of our sins was accomplished in his death. Nothing more needs to be done. It's simply our place to respond to your gracious work of conviction in our hearts and instruction in our hearts to respond in saving faith, a faith that inherently means we are no longer trusting in ourselves, but we're trusting in him, a faith that inherently means that we are turning from trivializing sin to now recognizing it is sin that was the cause of your death on our place. It's a faith that innately means we see you as our Lord and Savior and we submit to you and we follow you. Thank you for giving us that great gift of faith that we might be forgiven of our trespasses.
In our Savior's name, amen.